Welcome to the Sisterhood of Battle podcast, the Warhammer 40k podcast for all things Sisters of Battle. I'm your host, Big Easy, coming at you from Holy Terra. Welcome to episode three of the Sisterhood of Battle podcast. This is your host, Big Easy. This week we've got with us Mitch Beard from the Sister, uh, I'm sorry, Sisters of Battle Discord. I don't know the name of it. I'm there quite a lot. Welcome, Mitch. How are you doing today? Great to talk to you. Thank you so much for joining us. And I was making a point to Mitch just before we started recording that this will be the first episode of the Sisterhood of Battle podcast where we actually talk about the game of Warhammer 40,000. Here we go. <laughs> it's been hinted at. You know, we've talked about certain components and some of the backstory around it. Um, but, you know, there is an actual game with dice and rules and everything that, that goes with this game. And I love to play it. I'm very new at it. Uh, I'm not very good at it, but it doesn't stop me. Um, and I think that's part of the fun of this hobby is just, you know, getting into it and uh, learning from experience. And uh, Mitch, if you'll answer, how long have you uh, been at the actual tabletop gaming side of Warhammer 40K? So... I first started playing Warhammer when I was around 13 or 14 years old. Uh, awkward, nerdy kid in the game store, doesn't quite know what he's doing, picks the faction that no one else plays because no one else plays it as the primary reason. Uh, and so I've kind of been with them as my main ever since. I played a lot in high school and a little bit in college. Um, I had a phase where I really got back into Warhammer in my mid-20s. Mm-hmm. But then with the late 6th, 7th edition and real life stuff, having a kid, I dropped it for a while and I've only ever only picked it up recently with 8th edition. So I was pretty heavy in 3, 3.5, like High Witch Hunters Codex, 5th mm-hmm. uh, edition, which was often considered a competitive haven. And now 8th edition is where I can talk competently. Mm-hmm. And uh, I've been maining sisters ever since. I think they're a super interesting faction. I love the lore. I love the background. I love that up until a month ago, no one ever played them. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's just been a blast. When you started out, you started with Sisters of Battle, right? Yes. When you first started the hobby. And um, and then you said you picked them up again uh, in 8th edition. So did you start with the Beta Codex? I did. I did. So I went right from the free digital download codex, which came out in 6th edition, and jumped straight over to the Beta Codex. I think I was a little surprised that mm-hmm. Sisters even made the Beta Codex. I'm sorry, mm-hmm. even made the Index because of how unsupported they had been. But when I actually got to crack it open and see the rules, it was actually pretty inspiring. Okay, well, so did you start back up again with the index or or with the beta codex that came out at the end of last year or at the yes. end of the year before? I started with the index. So okay. my first tournament literally of any size, RTT to major, was the 2018 Nova Open, which was a 256-player <laughs> event, which right. is a heck Cute. of a way to get started. Yeah, trial by fire. And I took my sisters and I took a night and uh, I did fairly well. Wow. See, that's the kind of success that, that we want to know more about, I think, a lot of us. <laughs> so um, what, what about the competitive side of Warhammer 40K? So when did you first get into that and how did you get into it? So my first real attempt at competitive was in 5th edition. The problem was that I was playing sisters in 5th edition, which was a bit of an inhibitor. At the time, Grey Knights were just brutal. Space Wolves were just brutal. And it was pretty difficult to compete. But I still definitely gave it my all by putting as many Battle Sisters into Rhinos as I could and charging them forwards. Back in 5th edition, the, well, the Witch Hunters Codex, the Acts of Faith are actually quite powerful. 
and you could give battle sisters, including their bolters and including their template flamers rending. So a wound of a six would just bypass armor. So 20 or 30 girls getting out of their party buses could shoot anything to death in the game, which was a lot of fun. Yeah, that sounds great. And so you mentioned, you know, you kind of had some ups and downs and, in, in, you know, like a lot of people do with the hobby, you, you put it down, you kind of pick it back up again. Um, how, what has your experience with it been uh, since uh, the beta codex, at least? Did you start playing with the beta rules or did you wait until the full actual codex came out recently? Oh, no, I've been playing Sisters consistently ever since the Index came out. So I played the Index a lot. I played the beta codex a lot. And now I'm obviously playing the, the full codex quite a bit. Basically, since 8th edition started, I haven't let off the gas, and I've been attending a lot of events more or less whenever I can, like right. permitting. And how would you rate uh, the Sisters as a faction supported by the rules from 8th edition index to beta to now? Are you asking me to rate the three of them compared to one another or compared to the field? Yeah, well, just tell us a little bit. Uh, yeah, both, actually. You know, how, how would you compare them first just within you know, among those rules and then how they have fared uh, for you across competitive play? So I would say far and away, the Codex is the superior of the three of them, and it's not even close. Miracle dice are really flavorful and interesting and also great for telling a story. Mm-hmm. Um, the stratagems are really cool. The new units are excellent. Being able to turn Repentia into crazy murderers is really exciting. Zephyrim are just my favorite unit in the Codex right now. So there's no question that's the most interesting, the most powerful, and the most flavorful of the three. I actually think the index might have been slightly more powerful than the beta codex the beta codex had some tricks but index sisters could move twice and they could shoot twice and if we remember that yanari just completely destroyed everybody by moving twice quite a lot even moving twice once was really really powerful so i almost rate that higher uh but i think the beta codex was obviously a step in the right direction because it got us to the final codex so i can only judge it a little bit Sure. Did you provide feedback on the uh, contents of the beta codex? I did. I said that exorcists were random as anything and faith was terrible. And I'm sure that they listened to me and me alone because they fixed exorcists <laughs> and faith yeah. got amazing. So you're welcome, everybody. Yeah, I was about to say, even before you said that, I was going to say thank you because those are two amazing parts of the actual codex, the current codex. And uh, I'm loving figuring them out. I'm loving playing them. Even losing with those these new rules, I think, uh, is a lot of fun. Uh, but I don't feel like I'm doomed to lose, which is which is nice. Absolutely right. So can you tell us a little bit about competitive play? You said your first tournament uh, was a uh, Nova Open. Is that right? Yes, that's right. Two years ago. And uh, how does one, let's say someone is listening this first time, they're getting into the hobby uh, kind of recently. Uh, what is competitive play? How is it different from just going to the game store and uh, picking up a game with somebody? So I would say the main difference of going to a big event like a marquee event versus your local store is that the players you will play are just a higher order of caliber. But also I find the hobby is a higher order caliber. Like if you go to your local game store, you might easily be up against gray Marines or gray towel or gray custodes or whatever. The, the sure. custodes are probably spray painted gold and then put on <laughs> That's the table. Easy right. But the at, the, at a real tournament with a painting requirement, you really see a much higher level. And sometimes there's this perspective amongst people who don't go to competitive events that everyone just like wash their models one color and it's win at all costs and a total jerk and just wants to beat your face since they can feel good about themselves. Actually, 
they're just the ones who love the hobby so much. They, they got on a plane or got in their car and went for a while to play a lot of other people. So that self-selects the ones who like the hobby and like to put together beautiful models and really like to put a good game in and give you all that they've got in the in those three hours that you have together at the table. That's a great point. And um, I, I see it a lot online. I think that with all types of, of hobbies and certainly all types of games and all types of uh, tabletop games, uh, you know, everyone doesn't enjoy things the exact same way. And it's also too common to see people uh, without knowing anything about the other person, uh, expect that, that one is judging the other or that, you know, they're being held to some standard when it's like, hey, you know, just let people enjoy what they enjoy and enjoy their hobby the way they want to. And I think everybody would, would be a little happier. I would say two points on this. The first is that I have played that player who you really don't want to play and cheats with the rules and fast rolls and picks up their dice too quickly. And just is generally a total nightmare. I've never played that player at an event, like a tournament event. I have played that player in a local store. I think that class of player really just wants to beat people that way. And that they actually can't do it against players who know the rules and know their faction and know how to give them a good game. So they almost avoid <laughs> the competitive yeah, yeah. events because sure. they can't get what they want. Yeah. And the second thing I'd say is like, for me, it's all about expectations. If I come into a game expecting to run a tough list against a tough list and use every tactic in the book and they do as well, it's very fun. Mm -hmm. But if either one of us doesn't hold that expectation, that's where the problem lies. There's something intrinsically wrong with wanting to play a hard-nosed game or wanting to play a super fluffy game, the only problem is when you don't agree before you step up to the table. Absolutely. Yeah, I think that communication, and whether it's done outright or just done through kind of getting a feel for what type of you know ways people, different people and potential opponents might enjoy the game, but it's such an important part of the recipe of having an enjoyable game, whether that's part of a, a tournament experience or, you know, a narrative campaign or, you know, a combination. Um, it's just a matter, I think people need to not assume that there is only one right way to do it. Um, I, I also think that there's something about competitive play that is uh, attractive across all uh, different ways of enjoying the hobby. And it's that with competitive play and with um, sort of standards for, uh, you know, the meta or, or what's effective or, or ways to build a list is that um, it's it's instantly accessible to someone, say, in an online community. You know, sometimes that's all the only community people have for a certain game or a certain faction. Um, you can't always instantly speak the same language about narrative or fluff or something, but you can just say, hey, this is objectively going to work if this happens and if you bring this. And so you have a shared language immediately, which tends to kind of push a lot of people uh, towards um, the competitive side of things. Absolutely right. If I can step up to the table and say, want to play 2000 points ITC, and they say, yes, we've just avoided a lot of conversation mm -hmm. and we've just gotten to roll dice right away. And if that's the experience we're both chasing, great. We saved ourselves some time and we set expectations up front. Let's go. Yeah. Yeah. So I think it's a great thing. I think that um, it's a great way to, you know, get new games. And um, I have myself have not yet done uh, any kind of, you know, major tournament. I've, I've done some store tournaments. I'm, I'm looking to do more as I'm relatively new to the hobby. But I certainly um, am excited about the prospect of using that, uh, you know, the, the competitive format as a tool for both, you know, A, like you said, getting to know my army better, getting to know how the different components work, um, really unlocking a lot of the potential of an army, right? Because a, a unit can have rules that you can read and understand. That's a lot different than, you know, uh, orchestrating a, a larger plan that can only come through experience of running your army multiple times. My first ever game at my first ever tournament, so round one, Nova 2018, I go up against a Nurgle Demons player, 
and he's running like 20 plague flies and like about 90 plague bearers and all this stuff. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I think to myself, I've read about death guard. They're hard to kill. I will handle this accordingly. I knew it in my head. Mm -hmm. But then when I fired my entire army and killed four plague flies on turn one, (laughs) that's when I knew it in my heart. And ever (laughs) since I played much better against chaos demon against Nurgle demons. Every loss or every failure is such a lesson in this game, I find. I would like to make one last point about the tournament scene before I move on. And this almost can sound a little silly because it's repeated so often. And I kind of rolled my eyes at it as well before experiencing it firsthand. A lot of my friends in the hobby have come from the competitive scene because at the end of the day, you are sharing a three-hour experience with a stranger with whom you have a very specific and very deep shared interest. So it's very easy to make friends in that situation and then go out to the bar afterwards. So I probably made a dozen, 15 friends in real life, and then probably five times that many online just from participating in the hobby. And that's actually the thing that makes me the most excited about the big events anymore. Mm-hmm. And have you get to see some of the same people that they're coming to some of the same events and, and catching up with them. And, and Absolutely right. Them. You go onto your forum and say, I'm going to this tournament. Who's going to be there? Oh, you're going to be there too. Great. We're getting drinks afterwards. Fantastic. That's such an easy conversation to have. Just a few events in. That's wonderful. And yeah, so I would encourage, uh, you know, as I encourage myself to to get more involved in it, uh, anyone who's thinking about it, um, it does sound like a great time. Um, so this is a Sisterhood of Battle podcast is about the Sisters of Battle. What have you been running uh, since the Codex? What, what sort of lists uh, have you been looking at and, and having success with? So through all of 8th edition prior to the new Codex drop, my list was basically oriented around armor, uh, be they knights or be they exorcists or be they immolators or rhinos. That's classically what sisters have always been the best at. So that's what I ran. Knights were nice because they share that toughness eight at the time far up and vulnerable save profile that an exorcist has, which is really nice. So you could kind of overwhelm them with armor values and then play the game. With the new Codex, we lost our uh, ability to boost Shield of Faith to beyond a 6++4 vehicles. So I took a look at my Exorcists and my Immolators, especially the Immolators, because they lost the Scout move with Dominions. And I said, mm-hmm. you've done me well, but you must go to the shelf. For now, I will run a different Denial Army. Now I will only run one Wound Models plus characters. So my current approach is to giggle. Every time I see a Last Cannon... Every time I see a laser destroyer, every time I see a doomsday arc, whatever, those guns right. don't matter to me because you're at best shooting at a four up and vulnerable save nine point model. Right. And taking out one, yeah, one model max. That's great. Maybe. Right. Maybe. <laughs> Depends on how much faith you have. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> exactly right. Or how much faith I have in my. Day. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Okay, so um, so you run infantry heavy lists. Um, so what does that look like? All our battle sister squads, your main, or do you get into the uh, elite and fast tech units as well? So I've been playing with the brigade basically ever since we got the previews on the premise that the battle sanctum will be amazing. So I need a brigade plus a thing plus the battle sanctum for fortification detachment. Uh, Valorous heart is incredible. Those girls just don't die. If you haven't tried it. You have to try it. It's just ridiculous. I'm going to remind I, everyone what the Valor's Heart uh, trade is for their order. Yes. So Valor's Heart starts out tanky. They are ignore AP1 completely, and also they get a six up feel no pain, which comes in handy more than you would think. But the real killer is if you combine them with the Imagifer Tale of the Stoic, which normally gives ignore AP1 for 
Valorous Heart Battle Sisters, that becomes AP2. And that applies to vehicles as well, which means if you're sitting in cover and a Riptide opens up with its burst cannon on you, you're getting two up saves because you're completely ignoring the AP characteristics of that weapon. Right. So against almost every anti-infantry weapon in the game, because typically anti-infantry weapons don't have high armor penetration, you get your save. And right. if you're in cover, go away. You're not moving. <laughs> my first round yeah. at LVO this year uh, my, was against a Tau player, and he popped Kion, so he got to reroll all failed hits. He popped every buff he had in the book, and he killed 11 Battle Sisters. <laughs> and the look on his face when he was done shooting was just priceless. Yeah. Oh, that that must have been a great moment. That's see, that's, I guess, I've had. Some I guess I'm like done that. now. Uh, yeah. You're scared. Yeah, with sisters, when you know they do something like that, that is just completely opposite of what the uh, the opponent's expecting, and then you know you get to do your plan next. Exactly right. So it's so, not a killy army. Sure, but it doesn't die. And for people who don't know, in ITC, you win the game based on a number of points that you can score from objectives and um, special conditions in the game. Correct. Exactly. So the way ITC works, the briefest of primers, there are primary and secondary points. Secondary points you get to tailor based on your opponent. They broadly fall into either kill stuff secondaries or hold stuff secondaries, like holding objectives, holding the board, holding the middle, holding table quarters, whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, the primaries, you score up to two points for killing things, uh, but you can score up to three points for holding things. So fundamentally... ITC has a built-in advantage to holding things over killing stuff. So if you can hold things all game and they kill stuff all game, you win. And it just becomes the question of managing your attrition and managing the weapons that they can bring to bear to kill your models. And you found that sisters are exceptionally good at that combination. I think they're probably the best in the game. Now, that doesn't mean I've cracked the code and I won the LVO. I did not. Richard Sigler won the LVO. Uh, but there's definitely some good stuff there, and I will absolutely do my utmost to find it. Wow. So what's the uh, best results you've had so far with Sisters uh, in a competitive tournament? So both Novas I placed in the top third, which I'm quite proud of. Um, and the Nova is a quite competitive event. Sure. Uh, especially my How first one. How many participants in that? Uh my first one had about 240 and my second one had closer to 300. Wow. Yeah. And, and these aren't, uh, RTT players. These are people willing to get onto planes. So they're good. Um, again, I was not in the top, but I was, you know, I did well. Um, and I've won a couple of RTTs here and there along the way. Mm -hmm. And so what would you say, uh, how many games have you played first of all with the new codex roughly? I've, I can't say I've gotten in more than 10 or 12 games with the new codex, sure. unfortunately. Half of those were LVO, and the other half were practice before and then tinkering afterwards. Sure. I'm hoping yep. to pick it up again in March. What In, in those games, which uh, I just have to say is a, a great number of games for most people. I know that as a competitive player, you know you want to get in as many as you can. But um, again, this is why we're asking you these questions, having uh, much more experience than most of us at this point. Not all of us, I'm sure, but but most of us. Uh, what's been uh, your your superstar unit out of the codex so far? So I have two answers. I have a flashy answer and a workhorse answer. The okay, flashy answer yeah. is the Zephyrin. Uh, yeah. So this these girls get two attacks base, but they're going to be three because they're always going to be bloody rose. They all have power swords and they all have strength three. Now, when the codex first dropped, a lot of people said strength three power swords are bad and they are. 
but Zephyrin gets a reroll all failed wounds. So suddenly mm-hmm. their wounding on fives becomes better than wounding on fours mathematically. Mm-hmm. And then you get them plus one to wound for being the bloody rose with the tear them down stratagem. Now they average a wound more than half the time against a knight or a lemon rust against T4 or T5, they just obliterate them. So when Zephyrin come down, and by the way, they always deep strike because you can guarantee a charge of miracle dice. They just blow away something. Um, I would say the games I win are games where I use my Zephyrin correctly. And the games I lose are the games where I use them incorrectly uh, because they're just that important to the battle. And how many units do you like to bring? I'm currently running two. There are many competitive lists. I see that are run three because they're just so good. I like two because I can drop one turn two and I can drop one turn three. There's no risk of them having artillery to pick them up off the table or force me to hide. Mm-hmm. And how many uh, women's squads do you put in each uh, Zephyrim squad? Oh, 10 girls every time. They're okay. all about number of swings. Also, because they're melee units, they're really good at wrapping, meaning you surround an enemy unit and they can't retreat, so you can't be shot. Um you want models to just take losses because you will take losses and then they can jump out and kill something else. And do you like to take the optional pennant for rerolling charges or do you find it's unnecessary with the miracle dice? It is unnecessary with the miracle dice in theory, but in practice, once you kill the first thing, maybe you fail your charge against the second target. And for five points, it's a real steal. You might also just have your random canonist nearby uh, who's also Bloody Rose and can use that ability. Sure. And you don't find that uh, trading that out for a more powerful pistol is, is worth it. The plasma pistol, you mean? The squad upgrade? Yes. Right. Yeah. Their job's not to shoot. Their job's to punch. Yeah. I like it. You know, make sure they're doing their job, get the pennant, and uh, just run them into uh, you know the meat grinder where they can tear something up. Absolutely right. Now, what's the best way that you found to use them uh, with deep striking? Uh, what's, your, what's their preferred target? So I'll tell you what... I want to do that is always wrong. And that is to deep strike deep into your opponent's backfield and blow up a tank or wrap some objective holders or disrupt their plan from behind. Mm-hmm. What actually happens is you kill an inconsequential unit, their army turns around and shoots it, and your clever plan looks really stupid. It does. I've, You've watched my most recent game. I feel like you have. <laughs> what the right thing to do is a lot of games will end up as a scrum in midboard for those center field objectives. You're throwing battle sisters and getting them killed, and they're throwing marines and not getting them killed very quickly. Um, in those circumstances, if you throw the Zephyr into the middle, they go off like a bomb, and they just totally clear out midfield, and now you have board control again. Because at the end of the day, board control is what you want to do, not kill some random backfield tank, which probably isn't killing a lot of battle sisters anyway. Right. Okay, so that's your flashy answer. So uh, what's your workhorse answer? All right, the workhorse answer are the Seraphim. It's all angels all the time in my top list here. Mm -hmm. But I've been running my Seraphim as uh, Valorous Heart for the durability. A lot of people look at me crazy and ask why you're not running them as Bloody Rose, because Bloody Rose, again, is minus one AP on the pistols and in combat and an extra attack, and they have Mm -hmm. pistols and they like to punch. Mm-hmm. I found that the durability is really important, though, because it lets me keep them on the board if I want to. Say, if I know they're coming at me and I want to countercharge and jump in and shoot things with Inferno pistols. Right. And against gun lines, you can drop them nine inches from their castle in a crater, and there's just nothing they can do about it if they're Valorous Heart. And then the next turn, you go in and blow everything up. So I found the Valorous Heart uh, Seraphim to be excellent. 
Also, we have a two CP stratagem to fall back and charge, mm -hmm. which is lovely. And so the Seraphim are character assassins and they're tank assassins, but also they're just a huge harassment unit, multi-charge stuff, touch tanks so they have to fall back and not shoot, wrap an infantry squad so they can't fall back. Just do all sorts of silly nonsense with them to really disrupt your opponent's plan. And do you like taking the uh, Inferno pistol upgrades on those, or, or are they doing their job with just the bolt pistols? That is a mandatory upgrade, and anyone who doesn't take them is crazy. Okay, thank you for saying that, because I was definitely I'm gluing those Inferno pistols on. I just wanted to be right. <laughs> Absolutely right. Great, yeah. I can't wait till... I haven't fielded them yet. Um, you know, I've been playing and building as the multi-part uh, kits came out, so obviously means I'm not even to 2,000 points yet, personally, but... Um, of course, the the announcement that those will be available for pre-order this week. Um, tomorrow, if you're listening to this on release day, um, I'm going to be getting... It's going to be hard for me trying to decide how many boxes of those I want to get, and the answer is probably going to be not enough. I have already received clearance from the wife to make a purchase to complete my army. She did suggest that maybe because I already had an army, it was done, but clearly that's wrong. <laughs> There's there a technical reason why that's not true. Yeah, we can get yeah, into exactly. that. So, yeah, but uh, yeah, I mean, as far as coming close to completing, once you have an army completed with these beautiful new uh, plastic kits, um, then it's all just uh, you know games after that. Absolutely right. So and buying but, more models, and, and also buying more models, by the way. But uh, so you have played in some competitive games already with the new codex, using uh, as you mentioned the, the utility of both of these angel units. Um, and you've done it with a limited number of plastic models from the limited edition box. Can you tell us a little bit about how you hobbied that uh, solution? Uh, so I've just been collecting sisters forever. So mostly I just took all my old metal ones, made sure the ones that needed to get painted got painted. Also, I found right as the limited box came out, they got a lot. The old metal ones got a lot cheaper on eBay. So I abused that heavily. Mm -hmm. uh, there were maybe 10 plastic models in my army at OVO. Mm -hmm. Wow. Um, you do what you and that, do. In, that included uh, two Gemini who might not have, probably wouldn't have found their way into any of your lists otherwise, right? They made their way into my list as two of my 10 Zephyrin. <laughs> nice. Okay, so uh, uh, point of contention, and uh, I want to hear the pro and con of this, okay. um, is the uh, Triumph of St. Catherine model. Everyone knows a beautiful uh, plastic model kit that released, very thematic, uh, Awesome yeah, it is. piece with the uh, with with the bones and remains of St. Catherine and the uh, icons of each of the major orders. But the main problem is it's toughness three, right? It really is. Yeah. Among other smaller problems as well, right? Like, so it does not have the order trait. Um, it does not. Uh, so, you know, the Celestians can't uh, take bodyguard for it. Uh, of course, it has 18 wounds, which is mostly a bad thing because people are, are able to target it straight out of the gate. Um, but, uh, is there any defense for this triumph of St. Catherine? Is there any way, I know it's not your first choice, but in a competitive environment, can you foresee anything that it could be used for? Or if not, uh, what one change do you think, whether it's point reduction or rule change would make it more viable? So first off, I would like to say, I'm a little offended. You're making me advocate for the devil on the Sisters of Battle <laughs> podcast. Yeah, you're very making mad. No, no, no. You're going to tell us why other things are better choices. Not that it's a bad choice. Fair enough. So I have not put this model on the table. I have talked to people who have. The people who I've talked to who like the Triumph like it primarily because it is a distraction or a protector of their exorcists. 
So because it makes so many miracle dice with one of its five relics, and because it lets you use two two acts of faith per turn, and because it lets you adjust the dice rolls of those miracle dice, it means you can hit your six up invulnerable save with a five, which will probably have a few up because of the dice generation that it provides you. And if you're sitting in cover, a three up, an AP three attack, which puts you on a five up regular save is very easy to hit because you only need a four in your miracle dice pool. So you sit in the back, you keep your exorcist alive longer to keep on blasting and maybe even scare your opponent enough into shooting the triumph first so that your exorcist get another turn or two of life. That's the best use I've heard for it. In theory, you could run it up the board and give all your sisters plus one to attack, but I, no one I've talked to has made that successfully work, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. The now, problem I'm, with I'm the triumph, that. sorry, the, the main problem with the triumph is not how beautiful it is or how cool the relics are or how interesting it is. The problem is the profile of T3 18 wounds means every gun is the, in the game is good at shooting at it. Last guns are good. Bolters are good. Heavy bolters are good. Last cannons are good. Every gun wants to shoot that thing because it's easy to wound and it's got a lot of wounds. So if you're high damage, uh, high strength, great. If you are low strength rate of fire, great. It's always a great target, which means you're always giving your opponent's gun something valuable to do, which is never what you want in your battle plan. Right. And uh, and I'll play devil's advocate this time and say as a minus one to hit, of course, you know, most things uh, that are going to be shooting and, and like to shoot are going to be three up and four up anyway. But uh, as a minus one to shoot and if your plan is still for it to be shot at, is that enough to to buy you some time or is that still not worth the 190 points? In a post marine meta, if we're in a post marine meta, that's to be proven with the latest FAQs. Maybe that has some merit, but in Marine land where you can reroll all hits, minus one to hit actually matters very little. So four up rerollable to hit is still better than a three up to hit naturally hits three quarters of the time instead of two thirds of the time. So even under those conditions, minus one isn't great. If we could get to minus two, I'd be very interested, but I think it needs a little bit more defensively to get there for me. Okay, uh, and one other uh, sort of defense mounted for the Triumph of St. Catherine and, and see if it's enough is um, the setup that I've seen is uh, as put forth as possible is the Triumph model, um, uh, Hospitaller, uh, Celestine, um, potentially the Hospitaller or some other character warlord that has Indomitable Belief so that within the aura, you're getting a four up Invalm to everything within uh, the six inch bubble. And um, then you have uh, the Zephyrum squad there, mobile and able to initiate a charge that everything else can then uh, follow up with Overwatch free. Uh, and two squads of uh, you know, medium-sized squads of Repentia. Uh, so you have a number of things that look very scary that you'll want to shoot at. And um, the idea is that the opponent is able to effectively deal with all of them before time runs out. What's, what's the, how would you pick that apart? So I think the strategy is fundamentally sound in terms of having a lot of similar category targets for your opponent's guns to be overwhelmed by. I think exorcists, repentia, and rhinos are great to run together. There may even be a place here for mortifiers as a similar fairly hard target. I have a... My my own podcast co-host, Rob Helton, is currently trialing between 12 and 24 pain engines, which is incredible. <laughs> That's um, insane, yeah. 
but amongst all those things, the triumph just doesn't impress me. Like the Repentia don't need the extra hit to kill things. They kill everything already. Uh, and is it 185 points, the right price to protect three exorcists? Or is a whole nother squad of Zephyrim to make your opponent play more defensively a better use of those points? I, I don't know, but I'm not convinced. Well, I think you, you make uh, excellent points. And I think if if the if there's a question and the answer is to have more angel units, it's it's hard to dispute that because, I mean, from just being, first of all, just great looking models and having amazing utility, uh, great movement, which is always great, and uh, being actually really good at what they do for pretty good cost. And, and what are they, about, about 11 points a model? Uh, well, actually, you know, the Zephyrim are uh, a little, little more expensive than that, right? Zephyrim come in at 17 per model, so 170 for the full squad or 75 for the banner. Uh, right. 175 for the banner. Seraphim, though, are just 11 per model. And those Infernal Pistols are only 7 a pop. They are very cheap. Yeah. So you got a lot of options, and you got a lot of utility of where you want them on the board uh, and when, frankly. Uh, so I just think, you know, that's a really fun way to play. And I personally think, you know, as a newer player, um, they give you maybe a little bit more of uh, of leeway to, to, to make some mistakes. Um, not too many, but uh, being able to put them where you want, when you want, and, and that 12-inch uh, movement, uh, I think, is, is a lot of fun to learn with. I am still all the time putting them in the wrong place and then losing <laughs> and then learning. It's yeah, you know, I, I was, I've done it so many times and not until you said it tonight where, uh, you know, don't, don't go for that one juicy backline target just cause you know, you'll win that matchup. You gotta, you gotta think a couple rounds ahead and, and what's going to win you the whole game. And I'm going to try that out next time. Bring up some small advantage turn three, but if those girls made it to turn five or six, they're so much harder to deal with is what I found. Yeah. Well, uh, this has been completely enlightening to me. Um, I've loved hearing about uh, the competitive scene. We definitely want to have you back and talk more about this since you can teach us so much about, you know, how to play these sisters on the board. Even if there's just some smaller strategies that we take to more casual games, I think uh, you've already helped me a lot, both in the Sisters of Battle Discord and uh, today just talking through it. So Mike thank Ego you appreciates it, but, but sure. I'm clearly here an enthusiast uh, who does my best to do analysis and talk to good players. Um I don't think I have the trophy cabinet yet to claim to be a great player, but I'm doing my best. Sure. Well, having that analytical mind and kind of understanding uh, both your army and having seen a lot of others, I think it goes a really long way uh, for improving your own army and for just kind of helping other players talk things out. So I, I think that's been great. It was uh, fun getting to talk it over anytime. Uh, all right. And you do this regularly, as I understand, or the plan is to do it regularly. Uh, tell us a little bit about your podcast. Thank you for the plug opportunity. So. <laughs> no I have actually just started my own podcast with co-host Rob Helton. It is called mm -hmm. Sister Act, which <laughs> I love is that why, name. although we are being friendly, we are clearly mortal podcast enemies desperately fighting for an audience, for <laughs> right, a small right. audience. Yes, yes. Uh, so, um, yeah, our podcast is going to be an exploration of the faction from the perspective of two enthusiasts. Rob is more of a garage hammer player and an excellent hobbyist who wants to run crazy lists. I like to play a little bit more competitively, uh, but between the two of us, we think we'll be able to cover the whole faction. We also plan to bring in a lot of guests to talk about strategy, tactics, battle reports, but also just lore and history. For our first episode, which just aired, uh, we got Simon Lean, who's the ITC number one sisters player last year, and we spent 40 minutes waxing poetic about bad old codexes. Wow. That's awesome. What a great opportunity. And someone who I'm sure has, you know, can talk with authority about all of the different rules through the years. 
And I will say that uh, I'm very glad that you're doing another sisters podcast. Some people would, some people thought, you know, it was daft of me to make one sister as a battle only podcast. But uh, I'll, I'll say that I've never listened to a podcast on a subject and then uh, that I was really enthusiastic about and been like, eh, okay, that's all I want to hear about that. I'm usually like, man, what else? Who else is doing something like this? So uh, I think uh, it'll be a lot of fun listening to both of these, and I look forward to them. Yeah, absolutely right. I'm looking forward to it, too. I think that our faction has a ton of potential, both competitively and casually. And the more people we have exploring it is all for the good. That sounds great. And that brings us to our next segment, uh, the Sisterhood of Battle Book Club, where we will be reviewing uh, Faith and Fire, the novel by James Swallow, one chapter at a time, one chapter per podcast episode. And this week we will be discussing chapter two. So let's jump right in. So chapter two, of course, we'll just going back to the end of chapter one is when our uh, hero protagonist sisters lose their quarry that they were supposed to be guarding uh, in transit. And uh, the chapter two opens with them on the hunt to try to recover him, Taurus Vaughn. And uh, it goes through as they land on the planet Neva Prime and meet with the canoness Galatea and in what may be an extremely harsh meeting for coming to face the music for their, what they've done and the, the mistake that they've made and ends up with uh, the surviving sister, Iona, who had a rough go of it at the end of chapter one, uh, deciding to take the uh, oath of repentance in a very dramatic scene. So uh, any notes that you want to start off with for chapter two? So I would say my two favorite moments from the chapter, definitely first is when Mariah goes to meet with her canonist superior and they really build that up nicely to be in, oh crap, she's she's in some real trouble moment, especially for anyone who knows sisters and knows about things like Repentia and Mortifiers and the self-flagellation that they're big fans of. Um, for sure. I, I think they did a good job building that one up. Yeah, you knew she wasn't just going to get like a slap on the wrist or something like that. You're like, some uh, any number of extremely bad things can happen for what you do. And she kind of was like resigned to the fact. She's like, okay, do what you want to me, but, you know, just leave my squad alone. <laughs> you know, like, wow, you know, it's like you can clearly, if you saw the last chapter, it's like, this wasn't really her fault. But uh, yeah, she was clearly about to uh, get some pretty harsh punishment for this and, and dodged a bullet. Yeah, I mean, just like in corporate America, someone's got to take the heat. Yeah, like you know, it rolls downhill in the in the uh, abbey of the our, our martyred, martyred lady. If I can say that. Yeah, and I liked the opening of the chapter when uh, they described this poor, you know, ship captain who's probably had just the the most harsh life you can imagine in the grim, dark forty first millennium, and you know, he's he's somehow rose to the top of his small you know, haggard crew to, you know, who knows what he's hauling in space. And then he just gets his door kicked in by these sisters who almost just blast him into a pile of goo because basically mistaken identity. I thought that was a pretty good, uh, you know, slice of life for the 41st millennium. Yeah, that was pretty funny. I, for whatever reason, in all of these books, being a ship captain sounds like the kind of job that you want until you read the story. And then you realize it is, is not where you want to be. Not even close. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. It's like you, you're just primed to have some, you know, crossing with a major uh, character from the story. And then it, it's never going to go well for you as like a rogue trader or something. It's you when just, all the protagonists uh, have bolt guns and rage issues. You don't want to be their scapegoat. No, no, you don't. But uh, yes, uh, this poor uh, Fenton did not have a good day. And at the end of it all, uh, you know, it was case of mistaken identity. Uh, Vaughn was not on the ship and they had to leave empty handed. 
one of the one of the thing I liked was the um, the just the description of how this planet has you know so much of their existence and worship based around this uh, chance meeting with Celestine you know uh, years and years ago, and it was just I love how they even describe it and they kind of just. Uh, you know, they might have just stopped there to change nav points and then keep going. You know, it's like uh, on this spot, Elvis Presley got out of his van and, you know, took a leak on the side of the road sort of a thing. And now it's like their whole town shrine built around it sort of thing. But for Celestine, it uh, gives you an idea of how spread out the world is of the Imperium. I like your analogy because it's almost like they took that idea of Elvis Presley, like spent the night here uh, and they just 40 paid it. So instead of being an inn, it's a whole planet. Yeah. You are all into that fact. Right. Yeah. And they're like, hey, you know, and they, they probably like sell, sell merch and stuff. And they're like, this is where the angel changed course, you know, and it's like, yeah, that would be a pretty big deal, though, you know, and, and it'd be funny if it didn't even happen. It was probably just like some kind of like light aberration and, you know, the, just a tall tale that got told and blown out of proportion. You're getting grim dark there, my friend. Very <laughs> grim dark. <laughs> it's heresy. No, I shouldn't have questioned it. Um, they're going to be coming for me now. <laughs> I did like the uh, the description of uh, Norak City uh, in general. It seemed like a pretty cool place, and it was cool that they had a, a shrine to out order of our Martyr Lady. They, they even mentioned that you know there were others as well, but Martyr Lady was just having to be the biggest, just kind of like an actual uh, Games Workshop promotional materials. For sure, it's I I'm trying desperately not to jump ahead, but when they explored the Neven Faith, I think it's incredibly fascinating how over the top it is. So over the top, even that the Battle Sisters are like. Mm. A little much, a little much for yeah. me. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then the introduction, uh, of course, of, um, of Lahane, who is this character as uh, you know, dignitary of the planet that comes in and, you know, storms into the, the Holy, uh, cathedral and, you know, demands off with her head in this very big moment. And I thought it was kind of cool how, uh, Galatea, um, kind of stands there. You can tell she's, she's really mad. She, she really wants to, to, to give it to uh, Mariah, but uh, in the end, she kind of sticks up for her a little bit in her own way, which I thought was cool. Yeah, like a good boss. You provide top cover for your people. Uh, yeah, I think that was a, a really good, uh, you know, example of leadership there. She didn't let her off the hook, but uh, at the end of the day, she wasn't going to let someone come in from the outside and, and tell her what to do. You know, some some civilian from the local government when they're, you know, finely tuned Sisters of Battle. Even a pr- head priest of a whole planet. If you're not in the order, back off, buddy. Exactly. Yeah. There is a very strict hierarchy here, and they definitely follow it. (laughs) So no one got the axe, so to speak, in this chapter, but there is the very dramatic event of uh, Iona taking the oath of Repentia, which is another, um, we mentioned this on the last week's episode, where, you know, some of these units that you see in the Codex get dropped very kind of casually, but very naturally into the story with just enough description for you to kind of imagine how they would work in the real world. And uh, I think there's, an, we don't, you know, see the battlefield side of the Repentia yet, but we see a sort of the making of a Repentia uh, in this chapter. And I think it's really cool. And I think it's just the reaction uh, of Mariah and, and the other sisters really says it all. My favorite moment in the entire chapter because you've got Sister Iona who has presumably fought for many years with her squad if they're Celestians it means they're veterans of course right right and have the entire squad ritually shun her and push her away after what <laughs> yeah. must have been the deepest of bonds forged in battle and then done in a way that they all think is wrong it's pretty intense and I enjoyed that moment uh, as, yes. a, as a reader 
And, you know, I was glad that you got to live, though, because I got the feeling I could be wrong. I tell everyone this, you know, uh, every week that I have not finished this book. So I'm, you know, genuinely surprised at each one of these events as they unfold around every corner. But, uh, you know, I'm hoping that we get to see some some really cool uh, Repentia combat uh, in the coming chapters and Iona gets to really redeem herself. I mean, I uh, I think you will. I, think, <laughs> I, I don't I give want, too much away. Yeah, those yeah. words aren't just uh, ceremonial. I, I think that's that's wonderful, Mister Swallow. Great job. I'm I'm just going to keep reading because of that endorsement. So, excellent. There we go. Yeah. Well, uh, any other notes for chapter two? It's kind of a short one, kind of a transition chapter, but some cool things happen in it. I think that's all I have. Like I said, the the making of the Repentia was pretty cool. I only wish I was actually painting a Repentia at the time. I was painting a Battle Sister at that moment when I was listening yeah. to it. But uh-huh. they definitely get you to want to put them on the table for sure. Yeah. Well, I'm going to be, I'm looking forward to uh, getting mine when they're released uh, pretty soon and fielding them for the first time, because that's one thing I'm sorely missing with a, uh, you know, mainly Battle Sister centric list. Um, of course, I do field the the most famous Repentia, St. Celestine. That's but, true. That's true. I was reminded very recently that she was once a Repentia. I had actually forgotten that. Yeah, I, I can see that happening in a game where you have a repentia that just like against all odds just makes all of her feel no pains. And then, you know, at the end, you're like, ah, oh, this is a saint now. <laughs> yeah. Let's get some weight I'm going to go find some sweet armor. Talk to you all yeah. later. Yeah, put some gold, spray paint some gold on here and get a cool flight stand. Yeah, you did your job well, repentia. There yeah. we go. That's kind of the whole point. I should strap my really sturdy scrolls. You yeah. get to floating. Very sturdy and take all of my uh, bad dice that, that only roll uh, ones or twos in the case of miracle dice and then uh, strap them to the back of the Repentia until they redeem themselves. Yeah. Let's not talk about rolling ones with St. Celestine. I, I've been there. Yeah. It's not nice. Okay. I have to make an aside. My very first, you know, I'm pretty new at 40 K my very first game I ever played at mostly guard. I, I wanted to play sisters, but there weren't many out yet in plastic, but I did have St. Celestine. Uh, you know, I foolishly just charged her straight ahead, you know, without any regard for the, you know, character screening and the very first attack roll of the game from a very experienced player. Uh, I, I think it was, I want to say it was five and no one's going to believe me now because I don't remember it exactly, but I rolled uh, five, two up saves and I rolled five ones as my first roll in the game of Warhammer 40,000 that I ever played. <laughs> I feel like there is no better lesson for your first yeah. turn. I think so. Or not yeah. act the way you want them to. Exactly. And I'm like, oh, I thought she was just going to, oh, she comes back. She is like, oh, no. All I had to do was not roll a one. And then I did it five times. So, yeah, I le- I'm sorry, St. Celestine. I learned my lesson. So, my yeah. One into a one to come back to life with the command point. And it was at a moment when I did not want that to happen. It's like an 11 Venom, three Razor Jet Fighter list. And I was being brutalized on all sides. And she was my salvation. And of course, she decides to, to bite it and not yeah. come back. And not come back. Oh, it's like, no. <laughs> see, that's the worst. All, those I can almost see coming, though, like melt wounds. I just know. I mean, anything but a, anything but a one uh, or, or a two, it, it, it's just going to be here. If I'm, especially on a single roll, I can just feel that dread as I let go and I cast the die. But if it's the meant to be, it's meant to be. To say anything but a one is when you're actually going to use a miracle dice to do it and you're mocking your opponent's faithlessness. That is the only time. You're correct. Yeah. So I've learned my lesson on that. Okay, well, uh, before we move on and close up this episode, uh, we're going to announce the winner of our week two, uh, or our second week for episode, uh, this is episode three, obviously, but our second week of the Sisterhood of of Battle podcast giveaway. 
Last week, we gave away a exorcist uh, head, the church face head, and that is in the mail going out to the lucky winner to use in a cool way for a canonist conversion. And this week, uh, I hope uh, all of you saw the amazing Miracle Dice holder that's made by Sigmarite Boutique on Etsy, like as in Age of Sigmar. Um, don't let the name fool you. Um, he does all kinds of amazing work for 40K and uh, Warhammer Fantasy, and including getting a great start on a number of kind of 3D printed accessory items for Sisters of Battle. Um, he's not paying me for this. I just looked at the store as a Sisters of Battle player and thought this is amazing. And one of the things I got was a Miracle Dice holder. If you've played games with uh, Miracle Dice, um, you can, you know, if you use the same dice that you use to roll, it's very easy to accidentally pick them up and then be like, oh no, I promise I had five sixes there. <laughs> but You could also with, do my yeah. specialty of putting it on top of a building and then yeah. repeatedly bumping that building over and over <laughs> again accidentally. <laughs> Yeah, and you only bump it when you've rolled like fives and sixes too, yeah. And then you have to re-roll them. But instead of that, I, uh, there's this amazing winged Florida Lee holder that you can get printed in any number of colors. And I've got the Adeptus Rotas, um, you know, hard to read, but incredibly ornate dice that work great for Miracle Dice. These slot right in there. They hold plenty of them, even if you run Sacred Rose like I like to. And if you're going to have the Battle Sanctum with that, you know, just cranking out Miracle Dice, this should do you well if you're using them right. But yeah, he'll be giving away one of these to the lucky winner, who this week is, drumroll, pretty underscore average underscore minis. Pretty average minis is the handle on Instagram. Congratulations. We'll be reaching out to you, uh, and you can contact Sigmarite Boutique directly. They'll work with you to make the color and size and everything that you want for that beautiful Miracle Dice holder. So congratulations. Your accessories will no longer be average. That's right. The, the minis, I, you know, I, I think they're pretty good. But if you, if you want to say they're average, they are. But your accessories, no longer average. So that's all the time we have this week. Uh, thank you all so much for joining us. Thank you, Mitch, for enlightening us on some competitive tactics. Thank you. And uh, we'll be tuning in to the Sister Act podcast very soon. The first episode is out already. Uh, I know you're in the process, like we were, of um, getting fully distributed. Um, but if you go to the Sisters of Battle Discord, I know that you've got an RSS feed and other ways to access the podcast. Is that right? Also, within three days at the most, you should be able to find us on all of the things. So just search for Sister Act 40K, and I'm sure we will pop. Okay, probably by the time this episode airs, um, that will be the case. So looking forward to hearing those as well. So uh, thank you, and that's it for this episode. Thanks for listening to the Sisterhood of Battle podcast. Be sure to like us on Facebook, facebook.com slash Pod. Follow us on Twitter, at Battlesisters, and Instagram, at Sisterhood of Battle. And let us know what you think. Theme music by Robert Russell. Artwork by at Gigahorse Deluxe on Twitter.